We find ourselves here in the book of Nehemiah, and the first uh, look here, I'm anticipating uh, actually two sermons in the book of Nehemiah. I think there's significant progress and redemption, not only in this initial sermon that comes out of a number of chapters, most notably in chapter 4 here, simply this idea of the paradigm of the Christian life, and that is to build and fight. And secondly, uh, what I expect to do, Lord willing, next week, and that is to look at the Lord's Day, at the Sabbath, because those two ideas are very prominent in the book of Nehemiah, and I think that it's significant uh, that we uh, would look at uh, these two uh, I think very opportunistic ideas that are really inserted for us in the book of Nehemiah. So we, we look here this morning at this idea based on the word that you heard. Uh, really the paradigm, if you will, the nature of our relationship to Christ. Or I should say the nature of living in God's kingdom. And so let's think, let's think a little bit about just the nature of things. Why don't we? Um, in our day, um, even amongst evangelicals, there, uh, there yet continues to be um, much discussion, heated often, about, um, about the relationship between a husband and a wife. About uh, this idea, uh, the terms often used are egalitarian, and complementarian, and those are certainly helpful terms. Uh, I would propose to you, as have others, that perhaps a better thing to do would be to look at the nature of men and the nature of women. And then to recognize that God has, in fact, made us (laughs) with a nature. Uh, And so, therefore, what is that nature and how do we fit into the way that God has made us? Now, the reason that I'm drawing that out is because uh, my intent isn't to look at the nature of men and women today, but to look at the nature of the kingdom living, of this idea of what it is that we do individually and corporately in the kingdom and again, to, to illustrate this in another way, let's think about the nature of our relationship to Christ. The nature of our relationship to Christ. Some might describe that as uh, when I entrust myself to the Lord Jesus, then I become a colleague of Christ. Right? That I, I, I vote for Christ, uh, and then I, I'm part of the team. Is that sort of the idea? Some would describe the nature of our relationship to Christ in that way. No doubt, uh, God has called us friends, but nonetheless, what is the primary nature of our relationship to the Lord Jesus? Is it that of subject? We uh, regaled in this idea that uh, the monarchy in Israel only established and set us up for what will in fact be a monarchy in the final heaven and earth brought together, and that is uh, we, of course, will be under the Lord Jesus Christ as king, as prophet and priest and king. But ultimately the nature primarily described in the New Testament isn't actually that of subject or colleague. The nature of our relationship to Christ is described as that of slave, actually. Often we see the term servant or bond servant. Bond servant is a euphemism for the word slave. The word is doulos in Greek and the word always has to do with slave. 
And so this is an important idea because the nature of our relationship to Christ is absolutely commensurate with what it is that he has called us to do. Right? Because what can colleagues do? They call in sick. <laughs> right? They, they decide to work for someone else. Slaves don't have that option. Right? Because we see that God has called us to things that, that are in fact very demanding, very difficult, very challenging. It may cost you your life. That's the nature of our relationship to the Lord Jesus. But the reality is, we, we have every reason to regale and rejoice in that because we have, we have a master that there is no representation of on this earth, right? We have a loving, warm, heavenly Father. We have one who prepares for our every need, one who has gone before us and lived a life far more demanding and difficult than he has called us to. But the Lord Jesus also said to us, is the slave above his master? The answer, of course, to that is no. Why should we expect to live a life on this earth more leisurely than that of our master in heaven? Right? And so, the, the, the nature of our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ uh, isn't only that described as slave, but it is primarily that. It is, that is the most informative idea, I'm persuaded. But again, we take into account all of these other things. He has called us friends. He has called us brothers. All of that is true. All of that is true. And we should regale in those things. But nonetheless, we are yet slaves. Christ is our great King and Master. When He comes to us, He doesn't come to us and ask us and call us to things as a colleague. He calls us to things as our Redeemer, as the one who has in fact purchased us with His perfect life and with His death on the cross and with His resurrection, validating not only all that He said, but validating certainly who He is to us and who we are to Him. Now that's the nature of the Christian life. But Nehemiah isn't describing the nature of the Christian life. I propose to you that here Nehemiah is describing the nature of living in the kingdom. The nature of living in the kingdom. Well, what is it? Well, Francis Schaeffer indicted many evangelicals when he came up with this idea of personal peace and affluence. Right? What is it that you're looking for in the kingdom of God? Are you satisfied with personal peace and affluence? Are you persuaded that because you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, blood bought by the Lord Jesus Christ, that you can then enjoy personal peace and affluence and literally think in your mind and so act out to hell with the world? I have my little peace and I'll be happy until I get to heaven. Is that the paradigm? of kingdom living? Is that the nature of kingdom living? I say no. The Bible shouts that kingdom living doesn't look like that. In fact, the nature of living in the kingdom of God on this imperfect, sinful world is not that of personal peace and affluence. Well, how about this? Is, it, is the nature of it languishing in compliance to anti-God regulations? 
Is that the nature of kingdom living on this earth? Languishing in compliance with anti-God regulations. We've just had an opportunity to live that out over the past three years. And many of the evangelicals have answered yes to that. They have affirmed that the nature of kingdom living is to languish. And children, languish means to live in a depressed state, in oppression, if you will. To languish, right? In anti-God regulation. Well, that's not what the Hebrew servants did in the book of Daniel. That's not what Nehemiah calls us to here. You know, 25 years ago, when I was in seminary, there were a number of missionaries that were coming back from China, and they were regaling in the three-self church in China. They were saying, oh, what a glorious thing. The government has decided that it's okay for us to do this thing called having a three-self church in China, in which the church would then come under the authority of the government. And they were, they were so thankful for that idea that somehow the government would be okay with the church as long as they approved what it is that was said. It was utterly foolish. Utterly foolish. No. It is not the nature of God's kingdom here on this earth in this sinful world before the consummation of all things for us to languish in anti-God regulation, but for us to do what Nehemiah has called us to do and has really summarized for us and been exemplary in this idea, and that is that we build and fight that we build and fight. And what we see in Nehemiah is certainly true, and I might draw your attention to perhaps the most helpful summary of this idea in the New Testament, and that is the entire letter written to the Ephesians, the first three chapters being that of doctrine, as the Apostle Paul is so used to doing for us. The first three chapters in the book of Ephesians are about doctrine, the next three are about duty. And this idea, Paul lays it all out for us, right? He tells us, Who is God? What has God done? And then he calls us to this duty in chapters 3, 4, and 5. And you will recall with me what chapter 6 in Ephesians verses 10 through 20 say. Well, it's the armor of God. It's build and fight. If you would build you will then have to fight. Now, the reality is in Nehemiah's day, if they hadn't built, they wouldn't have had to fight. And that would be languishing in anti-God regulation, right? But Nehemiah didn't do that. He took his orders from who? Yes, he was the cupbearer to the king, but he was also a subject of the king of heaven. What was the situation? Well, in chapter 1 of Nehemiah, verse 11, the Bible tells us who this Nehemiah was. And as he is going in to talk to the king, the king of Persia, this is Artaxerxes in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11, he says, He is praying to God, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Now children, I don't want you to have the idea 
that the only thing that Nehemiah does is to carry this cup into the king and offer it to him, right? You see, the reality is, is that this was a day, and we've just passed through First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, and even God's people killed the king. So you can imagine what the king of Persia was up against. There were continually people looking to poison the king, and the cupbearer was to prevent that from happening. He was a man of great authority. He was a man who was heard in the court of the king. And so this is Nehemiah, who when he showed up in Jerusalem, who was he? He was in charge. (laughs) That's who he was. He was the governor when he rolled into Jerusalem. And so he would be a very commanding individual. And we see that Nehemiah, along with Ezra the priest, were quite a dynamic duo. What was the situation with God's people? Well, I draw your attention to Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. The remnant, a remnant is a piece of a people. And these people, what what did they do? Were these circling the earth in a spaceship? safe away from all of the demands of life in Persia, drawn away from Israel? No. No, these people survived the exile. What about everyone else? They didn't. So these are a people who are already obviously described as rather scrappy in the situation. They had survived the exile, and it is in great trouble and shame. And Nehemiah had patriotic muscle memory, if you will. Verse 4, chapter 1. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Think about, think about Nehemiah's response to the news. How are the people of Israel doing? Not well. Not well. Not only are the people languishing, but the walls of Jerusalem are torn down. There's no place for us to worship God, to meet God, right? And they're being oppressed by their enemies, harassed on every side around them. What does Nehemiah do? Well, he does what you and I do. He just got angry, right? Actually, that's not what he did. He tore his clothes and put dust on his head. He lamented, repented. He was drawn immediately to a lack of holiness on the part of Israel and on his own part. Recognizing that relationship and fellowship with God is primarily about holiness. And that God, why, why is it we see here in verse 8 a recognition of the prophecy that was given by a number even up to this point, up before Nehemiah, verse 8 in chapter 1, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. 
But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. That's where Nehemiah was. Nehemiah recognized fully that God had told Moses even before the glory days of Israel that if they turned away from me, I will scatter them. But if they return, I will then dwell among them. And that's what Nehemiah is thinking about right now. That's what those returned exiles are doing. That's what this small remnant is involved in in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah is fully entering into and engaging in this idea. And we could ask ourselves this question as we think of the state of our own nation. Not unlike what Nehemiah experienced. What do we do? What do we do? Do we fall on our face before God? We cry out to Him as one who is sinful and needy, as Nehemiah did. So this is the state of the nation as well as the state of Nehemiah. Now again, the idea here is what is the nature of living in God's kingdom before the consummation of all things? And Nehemiah lays out for us this idea that in fact the nature of of life this side of eternity is build and fight. Build and fight. Now, what is this work? What are we building? What are we doing? Well, we understand here, if we, for instance, were to look in chapter 5 of, of Nehemiah, we could see that there, there not only is a, is a difficulty here in the physical structure of Jerusalem, right? The walls are falling down, the the, much has been destroyed, right? There's no place to worship. And you would say, wow, that's, that's great. This is just what I like to do. I like to build things. Wonderful. And when you like to build things, what do you like to see when you roll in to start? A nice, clean slab. <laughs> All kinds of materials around you. 